Baldwin says, I am not interested in your guilt. I am interested in your responsibility. One thing when people would ask him, what should we do? You know, I get that question from interviewers all the time. And he would say, I want you to come to terms with your history. And Baldwin's not somebody who's going to give us a direct response to all the policy questions we have before us. But he thinks the foundation of all those policy debates is going to be, we have to have the willingness and the courage to come to terms with our history. And he says, it's going to be painful, but it's a responsibility that we have as human beings. And it's the only way that we're going to move uh, our society closer to justice. Listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast and event series hosted by Shonda Smith Baker. Up next, Nicholas Bucola, a writer, lecturer, and teacher who describes one of the most important debates over race in America the debate between James Baldwin and William Buckley Jr. So, good morning, Nick. Good morning, Shonda. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I really appreciate you uh, taking time uh, with me this morning. I was a bit sad that you weren't able to make it to town because of what we're going through right now, um, because I wanted for sure my book signed. Yes. And well, I'll, uh, I, hopefully I'll be able to, the, the conference I was going to be uh, attending, they're hoping to reschedule like everybody else, you know, so I, I look forward to returning to the Twin Cities uh, soon and, and I will be happy to, to stop by to sign the book for sure. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And then too, I'm just fascinated by your work. And so I'm hoping um, for our listening audience, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself. So I am a political theorist by background. So I study kind of ultimate questions about politics, questions like what is justice? What is democracy? What does a well-functioning democracy look like? Um, and I began my career um, as a scholar working on Frederick Douglass. I was really interested um, when I was in graduate school in the abolitionist movement, which uh, there hadn't been a lot of work done on the abolitionist movement by political theorists. And that seemed to me to be a really large gap in the literature. A lot of great work by historians, by literary scholars, um, but political theorists hadn't really thought about what, are, what do abolitionists have to teach us about these big questions in politics. And that was what intrigued me as a, as a graduate student. And so my advisor, uh, so I had this idea of writing a dissertation about you know, the abolitionist political thought. And my advisor said, you know, Nick, we like you a lot, but we want you to leave. So we want you to narrow your scope a little bit. Um, so why don't you pick out one or two abolitionists who you think are especially worth, um, worth studying in this way. And so I knew enough about Frederick Douglass at that point to know that he was someone who I wanted to spend more time with and wanted to devote some, you know, some deep thinking to. So I worked on Douglass for, for quite a while, probably about a decade of, of between the dissertation and my first couple of books were focused on Douglas. Um, and, uh, and then Baldwin came into my life kind of by accident. I, I knew a little bit about Baldwin, but not nearly enough. And um, Baldwin, I was immediately just sort of taken in um, by his way of viewing the world. And uh, I had never read anyone quite like him. And he presented a lot of challenges for me uh, as a political theorist, because, you know, he's, he was an artist, you know, first and foremost. And so trying to grapple with these big questions as he's dealing with them in fiction and that sort of thing was, um, was, a, big, was a big challenge. But I, I knew that I wanted to spend a lot of time with him. And so once I discovered the debate with Buckley, um, you know, kind of built from there. Um, but that's a little bit about 
you know, what I've done scholarly-wise, and I, I teach, you know, on these subjects as well. So uh, great political thinkers, kind of classic books in political theory, African-American political thought, American political thought, uh, constitutional law. Those are sort of the, the that's how I fill fill most of my days. Yeah. Were you curious about history and policy as a as a young person, or was there a moment that kind of led you there? Yeah, yeah. I, I I've been interested in history and politics, you know, for a really long time. I didn't have an especially political family, but I, for whatever reason, um, I was always the kid. You know, like I think about my brother and I. Like he was the kid who was interested in the transformers and robots, and I was always interested in the people. Um, and I, I think just stories about people and understanding how people relate to each other and, and sort of questions of fairness and justice were really, you know, appealing to me from a very, very young age. Uh, my parents remind me of, you know, arguments that I'd have with them when I was just a little little kid about what was fair and what wasn't fair. And I now that I have a six year old, I, I get to re, I get to have that experience on the other end. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's always been something, you know, appealing to me. And so I, I, in school, I was the kind of student who had, you know, the things that I liked, I did all, I did pretty, you know, pretty well in and the things I didn't like, I, I struggled uh, in history and, and literature. And um, when I got to high school, civics, and that sort of thing, they, those are really the subjects that drew me in. And so um, I, I just have always had that uh, kind of interest in, in politics um, through, you know, his, a historical lens. And um, and then, you know, got to college and studied political science and also um, got to know philosophy. I went to a, a Jesuit university that had a lot of, you know, courses, ethics in every subject, ethics in business, ethics in politics, ethics in the law. And I was really, that was my kind of, um, you know, my happy place, really deliberating about those questions, arguing about those questions. Um, and so, yeah, for whatever reason, that's kind of been part of who who I am from, from a very early age. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on the north side of uh, Minneapolis, which is um, what people will call a historically black neighborhood. It was it was a neighborhood that uh, African-Americans had to live in due to redlining and, and housing restrictions. And, you know, my family over the last five generations has found um, a place, a home, a connection, a commitment really to to staying in place. And. Um, I went to North High School, which is seen as an African-American high school, and I had probably a pretty similar sort of leaning as, as you, literature, literature, history, um, you know, math and science, not so much. <laughs> but what I was really struck by, and I also want to mention my Aunt Gladys, who um, collected books mm-hmm. and just a beautiful home, floor to ceiling bookshelves. You know, I mean, I saw James Baldwin's books there, like I knew of his importance. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was researching and then um, discovering actually through um, the connection that Curtis the Young made to you yeah. was a debate that I was not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so I was really um, hit in a moment of a recognition of how limiting education or at least public education or more specifically my education was on dynamic African-American thought leaders, um, influencers, um, you know, that really have informed so much. So I had this deep sense of awe of what was happening. And also um, right behind it was like this deep sense of like loss and sadness. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's so true. I mean, I think with, with Baldwin, one of the things that was really, you know, revelatory for me getting to know Baldwin was I had no sense of just what a big deal, you know, he was, you know, in the international literary scene. So in that moment in 1965, when he's squaring off with Buckley, I mean, Baldwin is one of the most famous writers in the world. And, and yeah, so to have that, to know, to sort of learn that and then know that, you know, and certainly in high school, I don't think I was, you know, exposed to any James Baldwin in college, maybe a little bit in kind of my, you know, introduction to, you know, college writing class. I think we probably read Sonny's Blues or something like that. But yeah, I think Baldwin is somebody who in some households, you know, is, is you know, that that legacy was alive. But but it's certainly for the culture writ large, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, I think his, uh, you know, his influence faded. And it's it's really um, it's I think it's coming back, you know, in the last 10 years or so, there's a lot more attention being paid to Baldwin. And I think we're going to continue to have this kind of Baldwin uh, renaissance. But yeah, I, I, I hear you. I mean, it is, it, there is a sort of feeling of, of sadness, right? You go back and you watch, you know, some of these, these videos, these, these films of Baldwin, and you kind of are able to feel this sense of, of connection and power. And then, you know, you realize that that, that, you know, that has been lost for so many, you know, for, you know, for really at least, you know, a generation in a way. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, and I think that's really, I mean, you mentioned the, the having the, you know, the house, you know, the, the, the house full of books. I mean, I think that's really, really crucial. And it was crucial for Baldwin. I mean, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is the ways in which, you know, books were really a lifeline for Baldwin. You know, as a kid, he was somebody who was, you know, obsessed with reading. He, you know, says he read every book, you know, in the, in the, the library closest to his home. And then he began venturing out to neighborhoods where he wasn't supposed to go to get more books. And, um, and that he really found that the power of books to be, you know, crucial in connecting people across time and space and making sense of your own experience and trying to be able to navigate the world. And so to bring that back to, you know, where you started, I mean, that's why Baldwin is so important. Keeping Baldwin alive in our minds is so important is because I think there's for so many people, um, you know, reading Baldwin can be an experience that helps make sense of the world and helps, you know, survive in, in an unjust world. So I think that's why, you know, Baldwin is, is so important. So I always say, if I can go out and give a talk about this book and it reads, it leads somebody to read Baldwin, I, I feel like I've done a good thing in the world. And so as, um, as you were discovering him, um, like what led you to write, write the book? And how did you pick these two, these two people to connect in this way at this time? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I sort of stumbled into, you know, this book because it's been an, you know, really incredible experience to, um, to write the book and to sort of get the sort of response that the book's gotten. Um, and, and really it was it started with Baldwin, you know, getting to know Baldwin. I was invited to write an essay about Baldwin um, many years ago, probably about 2012, 2013. And I, you know, at that time, did not, you know, I was, had not read that much Baldwin. So it was one of these things where I, and I told the editor of this, this volume, I said, I, I, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't know Baldwin that well. I'm not sure you should be inviting me to write this essay. And she said, well, you know, this is uh, a now, you know, a friend of mine, Susan McWilliams, who's a political theorist at Pomona College. She, um, she said, well, you know, you have a couple years to write the essay. So you could spend a year reading Baldwin and a year writing the essay. I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. Um, and so I, as I got to know Baldwin, as I, as I said earlier, I just became just so, you know, uh, entranced by his way of thinking and, and way of viewing the world. And I thought, um, you know, this is somebody who I, you know, I really need to get to know. And, and as I 
was getting to know Baldwin, I, I came across the YouTube recording, the BBC recording of the debate with Buckley. And Buckley is somebody who was, you know, on my radar growing up and on my radar as a scholar. Um, not not somebody that I was necessarily you know, interested in writing about, but I was I have, I have an interest in American political thought, um, in American you know um, political movements, and so I you know I had some you know flirtations with writing about um, the American conservative movement in the past, and it never really come to you know an idea that I really wanted to devote too much time to. But when I saw the debate with 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 Buckley, you know Buckley and Baldwin, I. I was I was really became you know kind of transfixed. I thought this is such a fascinating contrast, you know, every, in every possible way. I mean, the, the life experience of, the, of these two guys is so different. The worldviews are so different. You have them on this international stage at the you know high tide of the civil rights movement. Um, so really, like the drama of that moment really pulled me in, and just a sense like that, you know, like this is you know there's something about this clash in itself that is that really matters, you know, historically. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about the clash. So I, I, I used the debate as a framing device in that essay I wrote. And as I worked on the essay, I kept, you know, thinking there's a book in here, you know, there's, you know, I, there's definitely a book. Uh, and I, so I, my first idea was to write a book that was really focused on the debate itself. Um, there had been a couple of, and so I was kind of working out that idea. And, and when I was working out that idea, a couple of books uh, about Malcolm X visiting o the Oxford Union in 1964 came out. And so I, I kind of had an idea of doing something like that, Baldwin at Cambridge, um, but as I, so the first puzzle I wanted to solve was how did they end up there that night? And so I, I kind of did this work of, with my wonderful undergraduate uh, research uh, collaborators at Linfield College, we, we went and tried to find the students who hosted the debate because the debate was 1965. So 50 years on those, those uh, Cambridge students, uh, those who were still with us were in their seventies. And so we tried to track down those students so I could interview them and get that story. And then once I had that story, um, I, as I dug into the, you know, the sort of the archives at that point, Buckley's archive was open at Yale. Baldwin's archive wasn't yet open in Harlem, but it, it opened during the course of my working on the book. But the more I learned about, about their lives, the more I realized that there was a bigger book to write, which was a, the story of the debate is, is obviously fascinating in itself and really important and constitutes the climactic moment in this uh, narrative. But the story of their lives, these two guys are born in the same city. They're both born in New York City, 15 months apart from each other. Um, and as I say in the introduction to the book, they may as well have been born on different planets. I mean, it's just the, the experiences they had um, in trying to trace out how they develop as individuals and mostly how they develop as intellectuals. They both come of age intellectually right around the same time, the late 40s, early 50s. So what I wanted to do is the kind of, as I worked on the research for the book, I realized a much you know, bigger book was um, was was what I really had to do, which was a, a story about you know weaving their lives against the backdrop of the rise of the civil rights and conservative movements, um, and and those movements obviously are movements that they are you know playing in respectively such a big part in shaping. So that's kind of how the book evolved, and it was it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of you know it was really they're both fascinating characters in different ways, and the the history is so rich, and they both because they're so prolific as writers. Um, they really give us, you know, as as readers, as as scholars, kind of a glimpse into their mind every day. You know, as they're as they're writing letters, as they're writing, you know, publishing things. So you kind of get to watch them, you know, think through these issues as they're happening. Um, and so that's kind of the the, the story of the book. Yeah, and as um, you know, we'll we'll talk more about the the debate itself. 
So we have this, this, um, these two guys born around the same time in the same relative uh, geographical area that had very different experiences and realities, which doesn't, is not an unfamiliar American story. It's quite sad or disappointing that uh, we could probably write another book like this in, in the times that we live in now, 50 years from now. Yeah. Um, it, it's really incredible. Who were the students that actually set up this debate? Like what was happening um, at Cambridge that, that allowed for this? Yeah, so the students, the story of, of how the debate came to be um, is, is also a story of a series of, of accidents in some ways. And Baldwin was um, about to, they were going to bring out a paperback edition of his third novel, Another Country, in the UK in early 1965. And so his publisher uh, was, you know, reaching out to basically places in and around London to set up a little book tour for Baldwin. Um, and so... Uh, essentially, you know, early in 1965, um, this guy, Bill Collins, Corgi Publishing, and I should say, Bald I, I sort of was able to uncover this story through the interviews and also through Baldwin's archive. Baldwin kept a lot of the correspondence that sort of led up to the debate, which was really, obviously, really um, helpful for me as a scholar to be able to tell this story. But yeah, so Baldwin's publicist um, reaches out to the Cambridge Union, which is a student-run organization, and, and, and the, the president at that time was a guy named Peter Fullerton, this undergraduate studying history. Uh, and, and so this publicist contacts him and says, James Baldwin, we're wondering if, you know, he's going on this tour, wondering if he can come to the Cambridge Union to talk about his, his novel. And Fullerton, as he remembers it, um, says, well, no, I, I, we can't host James Baldwin, even though, you know, he's this international celebrity, we can't host him for an author event, um, but we can host him for a debate. We're a debating society. So if he'd be willing to come to the Cambridge Union to debate uh, something related to the themes of his books, then we would be happy to host him. And so then, you know, the publicist kind of says, okay, well, I'll, I'll see if he's willing to do that. And there's a, there's a little bit, there's still a little bit of mystery as to exactly, you know, when um, Baldwin knew it would be Buckley he'd be opposing and when, you know, when the sort of resolution was formed. Uh, the motion they end up debating is the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. Um, and so there's really a very short window of time that this, uh, this, pre this president of the union, Peter Fullerton, had to put together the debate. So he gets the first contact from Baldwin's publicist in January 1965, and the debate happens in Fe February 18th, 1965. Oh, wow. So in that, in that window of time, he comes up with, you know, he and the, the other students come up with this motion and they're looking around for somebody for Baldwin to debate. Um, and it, it, the first idea they had was to invite an American politician to debate Baldwin. So one thing the Cambridge Union would often do is have uh, politicians come in. So like Theodore Roosevelt had spoken to the Cambridge Union back in the day. Um, they had members of parliament come through to speak all the time. And so Fullerton says he can't remember exactly who he tried to invite, but he thinks that it was probably you know, some of the leading um, senators opposed to civil rights. So he thinks he probably invited Strom Thurmond. He thinks he probably invited, uh, you know, Barry Goldwater, who had just lost the, the 64 election. Um, in part, you know, uh, he was defined by his vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. None of those senators were willing to uh, share a stage with James Baldwin. I mean, it's an interesting idea to imagine James Baldwin up there with Strom Thurmond. I and mean, that, that would have been even maybe a more um, a, a more, uh, you know, crazy event. But, but yeah. there was one, one undergraduate at Cambridge, this guy named Michael Tugendhat, um, who, 
who had met William F. Buckley in 1963 uh, when he was traveling the United States and um, through kind of a friend of a, a family friend, you know, a friend of a friend kind of a thing. And he didn't, he doesn't recall how much he knew about Buckley, but he knows he knew enough to know that he would be a, a worthy opponent for Baldwin. I think he, you know, they, they realized pretty quickly that Buckley was this famed debater, that he was a leading supporter of the Goldwater campaign, um, that, you know, they, they probably, if they did much research at all about him, knew that he was a critic of the civil rights movement. Uh, they, I don't know if they knew that he was, he had already been expressed, you know, very clearly his opposition to James Baldwin, but they, they kind of got enough information about him to know that this could be quite a matchup. And so they reached out to Buckley, who was on his annual, one of the things Buckley would do, um, this is one of these like, uh, you know, kind of symbols of, of his privilege. Every year he would go to Switzerland for a month to ski and socialize and write a book. Um, that was kind of his, uh, you know, for, for about a month and a half. So he was in Switzerland at the time. And so they reached out to him and, and said, would you be willing to debate James Baldwin? And Buckley was always eager to debate uh, anyone, especially somebody who he, who, who he disagreed with. And so he accepted. And that's kind of the story of how they, they got there that night. Um, and so I get into a lot of detail about, about that um, in the book. And I should say that Baldwin's agent tried to cancel the debate a week before it happened um, because wow. he did not like the idea of Baldwin sharing a stage with Buckley. Um, because Buckley was, you know, as, as Baldwin's agent put it, a master at getting under your skin. And he was, he was worried about um, Baldwin sort of sharing a stage with Buckley. Um, and, you know, he thought that could go in all sorts of bad directions. Um, and so Baldwin, for whatever, Baldwin was not that intimidated by people like Buckley. So I, my, my suspicion is that although the debate was actually, there's a telegram that I found in Baldwin's archive canceling the debate. His agent sends it, a, you know, a, a note canceling the debate. It didn't end up getting canceled, obviously. So um, I suspect that Baldwin, you know, was far less concerned about it than his his agent was, and so he went yeah. forward. He felt a responsibility to take on Buckley, I think. And so Buckley um, is seen as one of the founding fathers of the conservative movement. Can you describe what what that means? So it was beyond just his own ideology and his own writing um, that uh, that his his uh, legacy has left. Can you describe what it means for him to be the, the, the one of the founding fathers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the other really important parts of, you know, why I think this pairing of these two individuals together, you know, really, really matters. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, just having them having their life experiences next to, next to each other tells really this broader American story about privilege and about access to the American dream, but also this kind of role that each of them plays in um, kind of embodying movements is, is, I think, the other really important part of the story. And so Buckley is somebody who, you know, is is important in his own right um, in terms of his his worldview, but he's actually really more important, as your um, as your question indicates, in terms of his his role in building a movement, his role in being a kind of organizer and popularizer of ideas. So Buckley is somebody who has this, you know, this upbringing that we you know we can talk about later if you'd like. That is clearly he has a kind of worldview that's you know, built into, you know, his, um, you know, his life from a very young age from his parents is essentially, you know, devout religiosity, devout um, kind of conservative Catholicism, and also a kind of doctrine that they called individualism, which is kind of this hostility to any form of collectivism, communism, socialism, the New Deal policies of, of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, the Buckleys are, are sort of taught to be hostile to democracy as well. They're taught to believe that some people are fit 
to rule and others are fit to be ruled. So Buckley kind of has this kind of right wing worldview um, as he's as he's growing up. But in the in the kind of founding father role, Buckley, when he's in the early 50s, he's looking around at the political scene and he you know, there really isn't something we can call a conservative movement. And Buckley, what he wants to do is try to play a role in forming a movement. And the way he wants to do that is through founding a magazine. So Buckley had written a couple of books um, that were, you know, that were panned by the reviewers, but proved to be really provocative um, in, in, the, in the early 50s. One about his experiences at Yale and all the ways in which um, liberal professors were indoctrinating students uh, in the wrong ideological direction. And then a second book, defending Senator Joseph McCarthy, uh, the, the you know, leader of the latest Red Scare. But Buckley wants to, he, he sees that in the early part of the 20th century, magazines played a really important role in shaping and promoting the progressive movement. So magazines like The Nation and The New Republic played this really important role in American political development. And so Buckley is thinking that if he can, if he can start a magazine that would bring together various factions on the right, um, and, and under one banner that he might kind of play this role of, of creating a, a serious intellectual conservative movement. And so he finds, you know, people who are libertarians who are especially worried about what they see as excessive state intervention in um, economic affairs uh, and people who call themselves traditionalists who are especially worried about the perceived decline of religion and morality in the West. He wants to bring, these groups don't like each other very much, but he's hoping he can bring them together um, you know, and the glue that will hold them together is what they don't like, right? They don't like communism. They don't like liberalism. Um, and, and so Buck, Buck, Buckley's playing this role of kind of bringing these groups together. And this is right in this moment when he's founding the magazine, 1954, 1955. This is a crucial moment, right, in the, in the development of the civil rights movement, right? So we have the Brown v. Board uh, school desegregation decision in 1954, the, the backlash against that decision uh, in, in the South. Um, you have the lynching of Emmett Till. You have, you know, of course, the arrest of Rosa Parks, the rise of Martin Luther King, the Montgomery bus boycott. All that is happening right at the same time that Buckley is founding the magazine. So as a movement builder, Buckley is confronted with this question, how are we, you know, what he thinks of as we, the intellectual conservatives, going to respond to the rise of the civil rights movement or, the, or this latest phase in the civil rights movement? And he makes it very clear from the beginning that he believes conservatives should oppose the civil rights movement almost every step of the way. And, um, and so that's really one of the major stories that I try to tell in the book. And this is a story that, you know, it's not new to this book, but I try to get into it um, in you know, kind of more depth and detail uh, than, than maybe has been done before to try to capture how Buckley was thinking through what a kind of, what he called a non-racist, but not, ref not reflexively racially egalitarian response to civil rights might look like. So he, he thought he was walking kind of a middle way. Um, and, and so what I try to do in really, you know, great detail in the book is reconstruct his thinking on that and who he, you know, hired to write for the magazine to oppose civil rights. And, you know, essentially how that helps us make sense of not only that era, but where we are today. Sure. And just, you know, one little uh, quick uh, question um, to follow that up is that I think what I either heard you say or what I read in the book is that while Buckley opposed all the things that you stated, he seemed not to disagree with the, boy, the bus boycott because that was an economic challenge. Mm -hmm. um, I, wasn't, I, I couldn't quite figure out his delineation mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So this is the one, I mean, there's, there's a couple moments, even in the early years of National Review, this magazine he founds, when um, they aren't quite as, you know, uh, intransigent in their opposition to, uh, to the civil rights struggle. And so the one, and the one kind of exception to most of, you know, this generally, um, this position of opposition is that the, Buckley argues that um, economic boycotts are a legitimate form of social protest. Um, and so essentially what he argues is that, um, you know, in the case of the Montgomery bus boycott, it's this kind of strange argument when you think about it in a broader context. So on the one hand, he says, look, um, there, there should not be, and there, there are things that the state of Alabama was doing um, to try to make boycotting itself illegal, right? I and mean, this is one of the things that when King is, you know, um, was, is brought into, you know, um, to, to court, this is one of the things that Alabama is trying to punish him for leading a boycott, right? And so, so Buckley does say that this is not a legitimate use of the law. Um, he thinks that they, they should allow economic boycotts. And essentially what he says, though, is that um, the white, you know, the, the white population that wants to maintain segregation, um, they need to be willing to pay for the cost of the boycott, essentially, is, is what he argues. So he says, if the boycott holds, and one of the reasons that Montgomery was trying to prosecute King is because they were missing out on the bus fares of African-Americans who were boycotting. And so that was a problem for the city. So they're trying to sort of end the boycott. But Buckley says, no, what they, what they should do is just make the white passengers pay twice the rate. Um, so if they're willing to pay 10 cents a ride instead of five cents a ride, then uh, that, that's a price they're willing to pay. And that's, for him, that was perfectly fine. So Buckley, I mean, the part of this, it's a little bit, you know, I think d difficult. I mean, on the one hand, you're sort of, you, know, you have this moment where you're, maybe you're a little proud of Buckley for kind of taking a stand that seems to be a little bit less hostile to civil rights. On the other hand, when you think about it in context, it's not especially laudatory, right? Because he says to African-Americans in, in Montgomery, um, you should be willing to pay for your own bus line, right? So the right. city's not going to allow you, you know, the city's going to maintain a segregated bus line. So why don't you just create your own bus line? Now that in theory, of course, maybe there's some appeal to that, but in practice, in terms of the economic disparities in that context, that's a, that's a, you know, it's kind of a silly proposition. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of this one moment where Buckley does, you know, in later on in the, you know, a little bit later on in the, this sort of um, civil rights timeline, he will, you know, the sit-in protesters, he objects to sit-in protesting because he says it's a violation of private property rights, but he says it's perfectly acceptable for those students who are protesting um, to, to boycott, you know, put, you know, Woolworths and places that are not, you know, that have segregated lunch counters. But yeah, he tries to draw these lines. Um, so, you know, but, you know, as I argue in the book, in the, in the larger context of, you know, power relationships in the South, a lot of his alternative proposals, uh, they seem to lose a lot of their appeal. Yeah. And then we have um, James Baldwin, who um, came in um, into scene and he did not describe himself as a civil rights leader. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, do you think that he was um, conflicted by what that meant? Yeah, yeah, that's a really, that's, that's a really good question. And it's, it's one that Baldwin himself, you know, grappled, grappled with throughout his career. I mean, so Baldwin, um, he, you know, he thinks of himself, Self primarily right as an artist like he thinks you know his, pri his primary vocation his primary passion is is as an artist you know I mean certainly I think he was most comfortable in that role writing novels writing short stories writing plays 
but he, you know, from a, from a very early on in his writing career, he is somebody who's also, um, you know, very clearly a, a, just an incredible essayist, right? An incredible, you know, incredible at capturing the kind of depth of, of, you know, human conflict, the depth of, of moments, uh, historical moments. And so he's writing essays from a very, very early on in his writing career. Um, and in the, or in the fifties, right. So he leaves the U S in, in 1948 uh, and he lives in Paris uh, for, you know, most of the time between 1948 and 1957. And he's still writing about American racial issues during that time. He's, he's writing, um, you know, a lot of book reviews, he's writing some essays, um, but he feels drawn back to the United States to engage more directly with what's happening. Um, and he, you know, gives these really powerful, um, you know, sort of, he describes really powerful moments, you know, in his, his autobiographical essays where, you know, he's seeing the headlines, right? When he's in Paris, he's seeing, you know, pictures of, um, of you know, children trying to, you know, attend school after the school desegregation decisions. And he's seeing all the protests and the backlash happening around them. And he can see that. And he's feeling really drawn, a sense of responsibility to return and to engage more directly. And so he starts out, though, in, in his primary engagement, his first trip to the South in the late 50s, for example, is as a journalist. So Baldwin goes as a journalist to cover the civil rights movement for American magazines. And, um, and he describes in that period, like he says, my role is, is I am a witness, right? This is one of the terms that he uses as opposed to an activist or somebody really on the front lines. Baldwin says, well, I'm a witness. My job is to write it all down. And he's all, you know, there's a kind of, you know, as his, his star is rising, he's becoming more and more famous and, and prominent over that period in the late 50s and the early 1960s. Um, I think, you know, that line begins to blur between like a witness and an activist. He never wants to be, you know, a, like a quote unquote spokesman. He, he, he sort of objects to that label for himself. He, what he wants to try to do um, is, is capture really the depth of, of the experience that people are having um, in various, you know, various parts of this struggle. And so, I mean, I think really most powerfully in that witness role, you, know, you see Baldwin, you know, one of the most powerful pieces for me uh, was, you know, a, a piece that he wrote called The Fly and Buttermilk, which is a piece where he goes um, to North Carolina and his first trip to the South, and he sits down with a 15-year-old kid who's, you know, the first African-American student in a previously all-white school. And he wants to try to capture what that, what the world looks like through his eyes. And this is always what Baldwin is trying to do is to try to see the world through the eyes of others and try to get his readers to do the same. And so he sits down with this young man and tries to understand what it's like for him to, you know, show up that first day at school and have the white students forming an arm in arm barricade, you know, to keep him out. Uh, what it's like for him to be subjected to physical and verbal assaults on a regular basis. Um, what it's like for him to see his parents, you know, subjected to, uh, you know, harassment as a result of their decision to send him to the school. I mean, so Baldwin really tries to give us a sense of what that looks like from the inside. And he also, in those days, is trying to get a sense of what it looks like, you know, from perspectives like the perspective of the white principal of that school. And Baldwin sits down with this, this principal and tries to get a sense of not, he's not as interested in this guy's views of Brown v. Board or, or the, the school integration program in North Carolina. He's interested in kind of what it's like for him to play this role that he's playing, right? He's somebody who's been taught his whole life to believe in white supremacy. And he's been taught his whole life to believe one of his roles is to maintain, you know, the fortress of white supremacy. And now he's, he's in this position where 
that's being challenged. His entire worldview is being challenged. So Baldwin, I think he really wanted to try to, he thought that was his job is to try to give us a sense of what that, what that's like. And also, you know, sit when he sat down with Martin Luther King, he sat down with Medgar Evers. Um, he wanted to try to get a sense of how these, these folks were, you know, bearing this incredible responsibility, um, you know, and, and he wanted to try to understand how, what that was like, right. And what that, what that meant for them as human beings and, and, and try to glean from their experience, what that can teach the rest of us about what true heroism is, what true devotion to Liberty is, you know, I mean, that's really what Baldwin is trying to, to get at. So, I mean, there are, there are moments, right. When I, you know, like, when I refer to Baldwin as, you know, the, a, a voice or the, one of the key voices of the black liberation struggle, or, you know, uh, you know, uh, as, you know, civil rights firebrand, there's these terms that we tend to associate with him. Um, but they're, they're terms that he was always a little bit uncomfortable with. I mean, as he gets more famous, he, you know, in 1963, for example, after, you know, his most famous book, uh, the fire next time comes out, he, he does really just go on a kind of um, a stump speaking, you know, he's, he's like on tour basically um, doing, uh, speeches for the Congress of Racial Equality and, and, um, and is really engaged in much, much more of what we would call, you know, activism. Um, and I think he feels there's no, you know, he feels like that's the right thing to do in that moment. But by after doing that for, you know, several months, um, he does feel this kind of sense of spiritual um, exhaustion, you know, and he, he does want, feel drawn to get back to his art. But there, that's always going to be the, the balance that he's trying to strike between his kind of role as an artist and his role as somebody who does want to engage in the struggle for justice. Mm -hmm. So now we get to, um, you know, the debate and, um, I, you know, it was really curious as I was watching it for me to say, you know, we talked a little bit on why would James Baldwin participate in this, mm -hmm. right? And then I thought about myself, you know, and that even with these conversations that we've been hosting at the Minneapolis Foundation, and I remember the very first one, um, we had Dr. Robin D'Angelo come, mm -hmm. and I didn't know her, mm -hmm. right? And um, she's flying in, you know, for whatever circumstance. And so we're literally meeting as I'm walking into the room. Mm -hmm. And so here I am, African-American woman, talking to a white woman about white fragility in front of a white audience. And, um, you know, I recently talked with my CEO, RT, and I just said, man, like, you know, I've talked about decolonizing wealth in front of these audiences. And I'm like, this could go wickedly wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, there's a level of vulnerability, I suppose, going into that. And I'm certainly not living in the times yeah. um, that Baldwin was living in. And so even when you watch the debate, right? Like, you know, as a, as a brown person, you're looking for other brown people in the audience. And I think I saw two, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, number one, just the relatability of what it means, right? To kind of carry um, a weight or um, a value that you live through your work and stay consistent to. Yeah. But I also thought, you know, why give, did he, did Baldwin, give more credibility to Buckley's perspective? Did he dignify it? Mm -hmm. Or did his participation elevate Baldwin's mm -hmm. um, presence, right? Like, was it about changing heart and minds? Like, was it beyond Buckley? And was Buckley trying to gain supporters on kind of a white supremacist, 
more conservative. I know there, you know, there's debate on how you connect the two, but who was dignified in that situation or did it elevate the right things? Do you think to the audience? Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's uh, yeah. And I appreciate you connecting it to your own experience, right? Cause that is, that's really, that's really, really powerful. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's, yeah, there's a couple big, big things to, you know, to say here. One is that, um, you know, Baldwin, there is something really, um, you know, there, there's something sort of painful about watching the debate. There's many things painful about watching the debate. And I think depending on people's own experiences that sort of how they receive, you know, how they experience the debate, you know, varies considerably. Um, I remember, you know, one of the things that one of the really powerful moments for me uh, when I was, you know, in the first, you know, early weeks after the book came out, uh, was I was visiting a college campus in, in California, and uh, one of the uh, professors in the in the audience recalled, you know, watching the debate, you know, with her parents uh, when she was young, when she was a kid, and that she she remember her recollection of it was a recollection of pain, right, of of mm. sort of the experience of seeing Baldwin, you know, in that overwhelmingly white space, you know, trying to essentially trying to defend his humanity um, across the stage from Buckley, who is so dismissive, and we'll talk about Buckley's speech, I'm sure, um, it's so condescending. Uh, there, I mean, you know, it was, she was describing just the pain, you know, and, and also like that feeling of like Baldwin shouldn't be there, right? And I think that's a really powerful, you know, that's a really powerful idea to consider, um, you know, as we reflect on the debate and why, you know, why it matters historically and and what Baldwin felt his, you know, why he was there and what he felt his responsibility to be there was. So, so a couple, so to take, to go back to your question, right? So the, the, I think there's a couple things to say about, about Baldwin's thinking as far as, you know, I'm able to, to capture it, um, you know, 50, 50 plus years later, is that Baldwin, you know, he felt a sense of duty. He felt a sense of responsibility to engage in these sorts of conversations. Um, that one example that, I came across in, in Baldwin's archive actually uh, was, you know, 19, late 1962, he sits down and has a debate with William or with James Jackson Kilpatrick, who is known as the sort of one of the leading salesmen for segregation in the country. So Kilpatrick was um, a journalist, a writer who had essentially devoted his professional life to defending segregation. And I should say, as a side note, he was Buckley's go-to guy on race, one of Buckley's favorite writers on race for the magazine. Baldwin is invited in late 1962 to engage with Kilpatrick on television, on the Open Mind television program, on the question of segregation. And so it's, it's in some ways an even more stark, you know, contrast. I mean, Buckley was a little more nuanced in his, his white supremacy than, than Kilpatrick. But Baldwin, you know, none of Baldwin's, you know, his agents, his, his friends want him to go on to, with Kilpatrick. Baldwin feels a duty to go on and to confront Kilpatrick and to try to expose Kilpatrick for what he is. And that, that is something we see with the Buckley exchange as well. So Buckley, Baldwin goes into these exchanges feeling a sense of obligation to try to, you know, you know um, reveal, you know, before these audiences and, you know, these, you know, international audience in the case of Cambridge, what Buckley really is. And I think Baldwin does it in a more kind of nuanced way at Cambridge than he does with Kilpatrick. With Kilpatrick, you know, he just, he just goes right in the first thing that the show starts. And this is right after the battle at Ole Miss when there had been, you know, violent riots to resist 
James Meredith, an African-American Air Force veteran from, from registering for class at the university. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, Baldwin goes right in, right when they're welcome to the show, and he says, Mr. Kilpatrick, you think there's a difference between people like you who write fancy books and wear fancy suits and, and defend segregation and the people in the streets who are committing acts of racist violence, and Baldwin says, there is no difference. In fact, I hold you far more responsible than I hold those people in those streets because many of those people don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. They're doing what they've been taught to do their entire lives, and they've been taught to do that by people like you. And so that's how, you know, Baldwin says, that's, that's what, you know, a betray- I accuse you, Kilpatrick, not of betraying me, but of betraying them. You are, you are undermining um, their, their moral lives, is what he accuses. So I think Baldwin, in part, wants to go into Cambridge and say, to Buckley in a, a kind of le- more nuanced way, but I think a pretty powerful direct way when you really think about what Baldwin says during the course of his speech um, is to say that Buckley is part of, you know, he is a guardian of the fortress of white supremacy. He has been, um, you know, promoting ideas over the course of his career that have allowed people to rationalize a resistance to respecting the basic dignity and freedom of other human beings. And so, you know, Baldwin wrote this really powerful essay um, in the 50s called Stranger in the Village. And it's this essay where he describes the experience of being in this Swiss village where he says, as far as I could tell, they'd never seen anyone who looked like me before. And the, the, the essay kind of uses that experience of being in the small Swiss village um, as, also, as a kind of metaphor for being a stranger in the village of Western civilization. So there's Baldwin at the Cambridge Union, the world's oldest debating society. A, a sort of training ground for British elites. Um, and he, he says, right, you know, he, sa- he says, he reminds the audience, right, the doctrine of white supremacy came to the United States from Europe, you know, and, and he says, it's a little awkward for me to say this here. Um, and so, I mean, in many ways, Baldwin is, you know, is trying to remind the audience that, you know, they are all complicit, right, in a, in a way, in, in many of the structures of power and many of the ways of thinking that have, you know, contributed to injustice throughout history. Um, and so that's kind of, I think that's part of the reason why Baldwin feels an obligation to go there is that he was not, he was not one to turn down any of these opportunities to, to make those sorts of, you know, statements. It's really a sermon he delivers there. It's a sermon. He calls it a, he says, I'm here as a kind of Jeremiah. I'm here to tell you things you don't want to hear. Um, and that is precisely what he does at Cambridge. And so that, I think, is the best defense of Baldwin deciding to go there. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that just to get to the, I'll stop talking, uh, um, just one more thing to say That's about this. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, I mean, is the, is the, I mean, your point is a really important one, though, is that even if we say Baldwin is right as a matter of principle, like, okay, I can get that. He feels a duty to engage. He feels a duty to, to call these people out in the most powerful way possible there is the unintended consequence of potentially elevating their platform, right? And so right. there's no question about it that Baldwin is the more famous figure in that debate. And so he is, by allowing Buckley to share that stage with him, um, he is, he is, Buckley is already a famous person in the United States, there's no doubt about it. He's second only to Barry Goldwater at that point as a kind of face of the conservative movement. But that exchange with Baldwin and, and then the later exchange they have on American television in New York um, that definitely helps, you know, Buckley's star rise even higher. And Buckley, mm. the next year, will have his own television program that will go on to run for 33 years. And in some part, in, in some ways, I mean, Buckley's rise 
um, you know, there's a lot that, you know, Baldwin, you know, you know, kind of unintentionally might help Buckley rise. Buckley runs for mayor of New York City later that year and, and uses Baldwin as kind of a, a part of his stump speech, right? So there's a way in which by Baldwin giving Buckley attention, um, yeah. as you point out, kind of has this unintended consequence, at least in part, part of raising Buckley's profile. Right. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone listening um, to, to go and watch the full debate. Um, it's so dynamic and there's so many layers, including when Baldwin gets up and he, and he referenced Jeremiah from this biblical way. And he's got this, this, um, pastoral background, um, to the, the wonderful way in which he weaves in kind of his personal story and conditions and involves audience, um, which felt like a very different framing than what Buckley bought. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to like summarize kind of the points of view, um, you know, to kind of tease people into perhaps going to listen to the full uh, debate? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, the way the debate was structured was you had two undergraduates speak first. And so each, um, there was somebody on Baldwin's side and somebody on Buckley's side. And, um, and again, the motion was the American dream is the expense of the American Negro. The two students um, speak first, and then Baldwin gets up to deliver his speech. And um, Baldwin's speech is, is 24 minutes long, and the BBC recording available on YouTube has uh, Baldwin's speech in its entirety. Buckley's speech is another story. I'll, I'll um, tell folks about that in a minute. But Baldwin's speech is there in its entirety. And Baldwin, you know, he really wants to del- deliver this, you know, sermon about white supremacy. And so I would say there's like kind of I would, you know, three, you know, maybe four major um, components to it, just to give people a, a brief sense of what he's up to. Um, the first thing he wants to do is to try to um, draw our attention to the ways in which the doctrine of white supremacy uh, impacts what he calls the subjugated, right? So those who are the obvious targets of the doctrine. So he, he describes in very powerful um, terms uh, the millions of details of every day uh, that communicate to you that your life doesn't matter quite as much, that you are a worthless human being. So he talks about, you know, the, the police officers, the landladies, the landlord, the insurance agents, and so on. All these kind of millions of details that every day that, that communicate this, this message to you that undermines your dignity. So he describes that in really powerful terms. And then he says, but what I want to say is that that is not the worst of it, right? What, what is even worse than the experience that you have as an individual is you, you, you start to see in the next generation, right? You start to think about the fact that, you know, the next generation is likely to experience something very similar to what you've experienced, right? And that in part is Baldwin directly, you know, kind of drawing a, a question about the mythology of the American dream, right? Part of the American dream is to say that even if your life is not full of freedom and, oppor- and opportunity, you can have a hope that the next generation will have it better than you did. And Baldwin says that, you know, for parents, um, you know, at the margins of society, they are haunted by the, by the fact that they, they're haunted by the idea that their children and even their children's children may not indeed have much more freedom and opportunity than they had. And so Baldwin kind of draws our attention to that and the ways in which that, you know, is, is, uh, is likely to play out in the future. But then the other, I'd say the second major component of Baldwin's speech is to say, that the so-called beneficiaries or the would-be beneficiaries of white supremacy are also its victims, right? So Baldwin says that there are people in the, in the, you know, the United States and around the world, right, who are taught 
to believe that their value as human beings is bound up with their whiteness, right? And so Baldwin says that, you know, for him, that is, you know, in some ways, an even deeper crime. Um, and so there's a really powerful line when Baldwin says that, you know, you see on the, in, the, in that moment, that historical moment is about as, as powerful an example as Baldwin could, could give. He says, think about Sheriff Jim Clark in Selma, Alabama. In that moment, Jim Clark, you know, people are seeing him on television and newspapers, you know, brandishing his cattle prod, right, and using it against men, women, and children fighting for their rights. Baldwin says when, when Jim Clark, you know, uses his cattle prod, um, what's happening to his victim is ghastly, but in some ways what's happening to Clark is much, much worse. And Baldwin says that what, the way he explains that is that Jim Clark's moral life has been destroyed by the plague called color, right? So the, Jim Clark has been taught to believe that his value as a human being is rooted in his whiteness and that his role in the world is to pr protect white supremacy. Baldwin says, you know, his, his freedom, his flourishing has been completely destroyed by this doctrine. And so um, Baldwin wants to draw our attention to that as well. And then by the, you know, I would say the last thing I'd say about, you know, Baldwin's speech is that he also wants to think about this idea of expense, right? So the, the, the motion, again, being framed as, a, a, you know, this frame of, of expense. And what Baldwin does really, really powerfully, one of the most, you know, striking moments in his speech is Baldwin says to those students, um, you know, he says, and I, he says, I mean this quite literally, I picked the cotton. I carried it to market. And he goes on like that and, and, and really personalizes it. And that moment is like, you know, for the listener and for the viewer, um, you know, is, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's an overwhelming moment, right? It's so powerful. And Baldwin is trying to capture something that we are, you know, obviously um, on our good days, still grappling with in, in, in American society and, and internationally as well, is really the, the question of legacy, right? The question of where past meets present. And the ways in which, you know, Baldwin's personalizing it in that way because he wants to say the past is not past, right? History, right. you know, history is present in everything we do. There's so many details of every single day, every single moment that um, are in some ways determined or shaped by that history. And so Baldwin really wants to draw the, the attention to the students of the ways in which that is, they are implicated in that. And Baldwin says, I am not, you know, interested in your guilt. I'm interested in your responsibility, right? It's not about guilt, it's about responsibility. Um, I don't, you, you can tell me, tell you, you're blue in the face. I wasn't there, you know, I didn't do this. That my grandparents didn't do this, this is one of the arguments that Buckley makes. Um, and Baldwin says, I don't care. You are still responsible because you are a human being and you are part of a world in which that history has shaped the moment that you're in. So I would say that's the other kind of big highlight to, to draw in for people to think about from Baldwin's side. Um, and then on Buckley's side, so the thing I'll say about Buckley uh, briefly is that Buckley's speech is actually edited down. So the BBC recording that folks can watch on YouTube had to fit within an hour. And there really was not any good place to cut Baldwin's speech. Um, Buck Buckley's speech is longer, so it's 29 minutes long. There was a little more room to cut. Um, and it's a meandering speech. And so for folks who want to hear the entirety of Buckley's speech, um, it is available on the the the, uh, the audio book as an appendix. You can hear the full the full audio recording of the debate, um, which we were able to you know find uh, during the course of the research, which was really really fascinating. And so um, Buckley gives this kind of meandering speech. Buckley was always you know from his earliest days as a debater, and he was a debater 
you know, for a formal debater going back to, you know, the age of probably, you know, 13, 14 years old once he started prep school. Um, so he's a very skilled formal debater. He was always uh, sort of recognized for his ability to, uh, to rebut, right? He was not especially good at constructing arguments. He was always good at undermining the arguments of others. And so he's in that mode, you know, certainly. He wants to go after Baldwin. Um, he sees Baldwin give his speech. Baldwin gets a standing ovation, which is a very rare thing at the Cambridge Union. And Buckley, you know, says later, I knew it wasn't going to be my night. Um, mm -hmm. And so he says, I, you know, I had to decide, should I, you know, try to placate the audience a little bit and win a few more votes, or should I just go for the jugular? And he chooses to, to go for the jugular. And he starts out by essentially, um, you know, ad hominem attack at Baldwin. Essentially, he says Baldwin um, is essentially people don't challenge his arguments because he is black. People are not willing to respect him enough mm. to, um, to actually tell him when he's wrong. So Buckley says, I am here to respect him enough. And the way Buckley phrases this is really awkward. He says, I'm going to respect Baldwin enough to treat him as if he were white, is what Buck Buckley starts out his speech with that, which is obviously as we watch it now, we're, you know, it's one of these moments when you, they, the reaction shot of Baldwin, you know, captures how most of us, you know, when we hear that, go, oh my God, is, what is he saying? But then Buckley goes from there to say, okay, well, I'm going to respect him enough to, to, you know, to, to actually respond to his arguments. Then Buckley proceeds to really um, you know, create a kind of straw man of Baldwin's arguments. The first major strategy that Buckley uses is to try to convince this, you know, this elite British audience that, that Baldwin is a, a dangerous radical hell-bent on overthrowing Western civilization. So he, you know, he says to the students, he wants you to go raid the libraries around here and burn all the Plato and Aristotle and the Bibles, um, and that he wants you to overthrow you know, what Buckley calls later in the speech, the faith of your fathers. Um, and, you know, I get in a lot of detail in the book of the, the ways in which that's a really, you know, flawed reading of what Baldwin's up to. In some ways, Baldwin was much more deeply engaged with the kind of Western tradition than Buckley was. I and mean, Baldwin was very interested in, uh, there's a lot in Western civilization, Western tradition that's worth rejecting, Baldwin would argue, but he was very interested in engaging it in a serious way and, and reflecting about the ways in which, you know, we can help make sense of where we are and where we ought to go by by reading sort of the classics that Buckley was discussing. But then Buckley goes on to sort of describe, um, you know, various ways in which um, Baldwin is, uh, you know, is, is, is wrong in his diagnosis of the American racial, racial situation for a variety of reasons. And Buckley offers, I think, the most substantive moment in Buckley's speech, I guess, would be toward the end of it when he says that he, his diagnosis of the, what he calls the American racial situation is, um, it's the product of what he calls an unfortunate conjunction of two factors. And I think Buckley's phrasing is really important, um, you know, to capture kind of his worldview, uh, especially as it, as it applies to race. Um, he says that on the one hand, um, there are individual racist white people out there. And he uses that term individual white people in this part of the speech. And I think that's really important. He says there's individual um, racists out there that they need and they need to be dealt with. They need to be convinced, not by the law, not through the law, but through moral persuasion that they're wrong and they shouldn't be racist. Now, what's interesting about that is on the one, first of all, the use of individual, because he's saying it's kind of this few bad apples argument. There are a few bad apples out there and they need to be, uh, they need to be taught the error of their ways. That's one really important thing to know. The other is that Buckley is then placing himself outside of racism, right? He's saying they, the racists, need to be dealt with 
you know, and we, the good people need to help, you know, assert them, you know, uh, you know teach them the, the right way. So that, you know, the 10 years prior to that, when Buckley had been promoting in his magazine and on, you know, his, in his speaking and all his, you know, his, his platform that was significant, he had been promoting, um, you know, a, a pretty, you know, deeply, uh, you know, racist politics in, in a more subtle way than, you know, people like George Wallace. But, but, you know, I argue in the book, it's, it's pretty hard to, vindicate what Buckley was up to in the 50s and 60s. I mean, he was, he was engaged in some pretty, um, you know, some pretty nasty stuff that was essentially reaching the exact same conclusion that people like George Wallace were reaching with a little more nuance. So Buckley's excluding himself from that, which I think is a really something we need to interrogate if we're going to really understand what racism is. We need to understand that racism is a, a concept that does not require uh, the expression of animus, right? Buckley thought of racism as like, it needs to be it needs to have animus for it to be racist. And I think we now, um, those of us who are thinking about these issues know that that is, is simply too narrow a definition. And then the second thing Buckley says, the unfortunate conjunction is these racist white people on the one side, and they says, and then the other side is failures of the Negro community is, is the phrase that Buckley uses. So we have individuals over here, we have the community over here. And I don't think that's a mistake. Buckley, I mean, we're getting a sense of his, you know, his kind of more subtle racist politics with that sure. phrasing, right? He's saying that, the failures of the Negro community, as he's describing it, are failures to take advantage of the opportunities that currently exist. And so he says, I would call, so it's kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of argument, an argument that we've heard uh, a lot in the, in the period since uh, Buckley was making that, made that argument 55 years ago. Um, and he says that I call on James Baldwin to be a responsible leader. And a responsible leader would, you know, would encourage his people, as Buckley puts it, to take advantage of the opportunities that exist rather than complaining all the time is essentially what Buckley argues. And so Buckley kind of, you know, and then he kind of concludes his speech with this very dramatic, you know, essentially, um, you know, not a call for a race war, but he says, if there, you know, if people reach out for radical solutions like the ones that Baldwin um, is promoting, he's accusing Baldwin of promoting, then we will take up arms and we will fight, fight it out, not only in the Cambridge Union, but also in the landing grounds and on the mountains, on the hillside, to use the kind of Churchill um, language from World War II to kind of situate you know, the black freedom struggle with the, the Nazis in the, in the analogy and you know, people like him with the, the allies. Um, and he kind of ends the speech with this rhetorical flourish, kind of saying, we will fight it out and we will win. Uh, and that will be in Baldwin's grandchildren will thank us, you know, kind of argument that we will be will be doing um, will be doing something positive for future generations uh, if we if we win that battle. So that's you know, that's Buckley's speech, you know, kind of in a nutshell. Um, and of course, watching them deliver the speeches, I think um, the last point I'll make is stylistically. I think there's a lot that we can learn, um, you know, in, in actually watching them, listening to them that I think really captures something important. The substance of their speeches matters, but also the way they deliver them, I think also tells really a really important story about what these two men were all about. Mm -hmm. I have, um, I think two, two more questions. One is, um, you know, there are people that, you know, the George Wallace's and the Strom Thurmond's and folks um, that evolved over time right? Um, as they, as they aged, um, they took on different opinions. I don't know, you know, some apologies came, whether or not you accept them or not. Um, did Buckley evolve to a different place um, as he aged? 
Yeah, yeah, Buckley did. And so the, the narrative of the book really, um, there's, you know, the, the two chapters on the debate itself and then, and then a chapter about later, like sort of the rest of 1965, which has got a, a lot happens relevant to this story. Um, and then so the kind of major narrative of the book kind of wraps up in late 65. And then I have an epilogue where I talk a little bit about their legacies. And I do try to um, address this sort of question of Buckley's evolution. So Buckley, um, he does evolve a bit. And so one of the things I try to capture in the book is the ways in which he's evolving, even in this period I'm looking at from, you know, saying things in the late fifties that are, you know, sort of very much, you know, explicitly like, you know, there's his most infamous editorial is called why the South must prevail, where he says, you know, the white South is entitled to prevail because, and this is a quote, you know, for the time being, they are the advanced race. So he says things like that, where we can clearly, situate him in, in kind of um, a, a sort of explicitly white supremacist position to like by the mid 60s, he's evolving a little bit in his rhetoric, right? He's, he's not using that sort of language anymore. He's trying to, you know, kind of utilize a more, uh, a more subtle politics of racial resentment. So I try to really capture that in, in some detail in the book. And the later period, um, you know, after the debate, um, Buckley begins to, you know, kind of write things that I think we would describe as is a, a relative, a little bit more progressive on, on race um, in the, the, you know, the early 70s and, and in the 80s. Um, and what happens with Buckley, and some of that is, you know, contextual sort of particular issues that are coming up at the time. Um, Buckley kind of make, you know, saying some things more, you know, kind of gesturing in a direction of, of um, you know, kind of being more comfortable with affirmative action, for example, than we would think uh, he would be. Um, and then later in his life, you know, he dies in 2008, in early 2008. So later in his life, he is confronted with, um, you know, the, these questions as he's, you know, getting, getting you know, later on in, in his years, of does he have any regrets? And I think when he's asked those questions, um, you know, I think a lot of the interviewers are trying to get him to say, I'm sorry for what I did in the 50s and 60s on the civil rights movement. And what I, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of people who've written, um, you know, things, uh, the most prominent is a guy named Alvin Felsenberg has a book about Buckley. That's a good, a good a political biography of Buckley. Um, who's written quite a bit about what he sees as Buckley's story. The story of Buckley and race is a story of, you know, ultimately a story of redemption. I, you know, I certainly, I kind of went into this book kind of accepting that story is true. And I, the research I did led me to a kind of more, um, a not, not so clear position on that because I, or not, or not, I, I should say I'm not totally convinced by, by Felsenberg's argument and others, others who've made that argument. Buckley does say late in life um, that, you know, the, the closest he comes to a retraction or an apology is he's asked if he has any regrets. Uh, and he says, you know, I once believed that the country could evolve its way up from Jim Crow without federal intervention, um, I was wrong. Uh, and, but you, the, the same time, that same last 10 years of his life, you can find other examples of Buckley, you know, essentially saying I was right as a matter of principle. So he's on, you know, fresh air with Terry Gross on NPR, um, late in his life. And she bring, you know, she reads to him from that 1957 editorial, which is his most infamous on race. And he's essentially unwilling to retract, you know, anything yeah. he said there. He's, and basically says, I was right. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I think one of the big questions, and, I, and part of what I argue in, in, the, in the book is that, you know, I think we can have the debates about Buckley and evolution, and I think they're worth having in terms of our understanding of Buckley as a historical figure. But, um, 
But in some ways, I think they, they are less important than really capturing in this moment, you know, this, that I'm looking at in the book, when he had this incredibly, you know, this incredible platform, three newspaper columns a week, you know, um, you know, all speaking, always, you know, talking head on, on TV, uh, radio, um, the, the magazine, um, he's, he's got, he's, you know, got the ear of, of politicians. Um, he's somebody who in that time, in that, when he had this tremendous influence, um, used it, you know, to promote this agenda. And I think we really need to understand, you know, why he did that and how yeah. he did that and how it's relevant to us. So, yeah. And so yeah. And there's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, it also strikes me that um, just because you advance um, the way that you communicate something, right? Like the times are changing. And so what was once acceptable is no longer acceptable. So just because you formulate a new way of discussing something doesn't mean that you have changed your position. And um, it's very much that like, it's, it's way more nuanced. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's just quite interesting. Um, the last thing is around, I think you, you said that Buckley really was promoting sort of uh, colorblind policies or race neutral policies. And we hear this conversation a lot now on where we need to have race neutral policies. And um, I know this is outside of the book and the debate a bit, although it's interesting to hear him framing that at this particular moment in history and hear this conversation coming back up. Mm-hmm. And me, you know, and, and many of us, not just me, but this examination of we had so many uh, non-race neutral policies that have led us to this place of disparity. Mm-hmm. And now we want to be fair, which is actually only going to exacerbate the issue. Um, or at least that's my opinion on it. So do you have any sort of context that you can provide in terms of people that are looking at or talking about race neutral policy? And is there any, is there, is that even a thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, and this is this is really um, you know one of these things. And, and Buckley, you know, as I argue in the book, he's not somebody. And I think most even you know Buckley people who are very sympathetic to Buckley would say that Buckley's not necessarily somebody who can be looked to as an, a, an original thinker, a sort of creator of ideas. But he's really important as a popularizer of ideas. And one idea that he popularizes um, in the period I'm looking at in the book is this idea of a kind of colorblind approach that in the context matters, right? Because on, on one level, when you think about colorblind, you know, a colorblind, uh, you know, argument in terms of colorblind constitutionalism or uh, a sort of legal doctrine of colorblindness, on one le- on a level, a certain level of ab- abstraction, there's something very appealing about it, right? Of course, like, you know, like the law, law should be colorblind. We, you know, the sort of justice is blindfolded and so on. But if we put that in political context, when is that idea emerging and why? That is a really, really important uh, part of the story. And so to take Buckley as an example, Buckley from uh, a pretty, you know, pretty early on, as early as the 1950s, um, he's making a kind of argument for, uh, for colorblind constitutionalism, which, we, you know, as, you, as you pointed out, has become a major trope in, um, in, you know, in contemporary politics. And what he says is that, you know, he says that essentially what's happening um, in it, just using the example of, of voting rights, right? So he says in, in the area of voting rights, um, there are people who are um, calling the South out for racist policies because they are applying the, you know, the law in a way that is um, targeting African-Americans and excluding them from voting. Um, and so Buckley says in the 50s, and this is an argument he makes again at the Cambridge debate explicitly, he says what, what, the, what Southerners need to do 
this applies not just to the South, right? It's, it's, it's obviously has implications far beyond the South. What Southerners need to do is need to, they need to stop um, applying the law in a racist way, an explicitly racist way. They need to apply it equally without regard to race. Now, and Buckley is willing to acknowledge that this will have a disparate impact on people who have been previously subjugated, right? He knows that if you have some sort of neutral uh, sort of way of excluding people from voting, then those who have been excluded from educational and economic opportunity in the past are going to be, you know, are going to be excluded at a higher rate under this new kind of colorblind system. But he says he, for in his mind, that will liberate the South from any uh, taint of racism, right? Because they will now have a colorblind. And he actually says in the fifties, the South can um, pave the way. Uh, he says in, in a, one of his early pieces on this that the South can pave the way for the rest of the country with a model of a kind of race-neutral, colorblind approach um, that will have ultimately mostly the same effect, right? And so at Cambridge, you know, many years later, he's still advocating that view. So this is in the, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act is, you know, being debated in this period. It, you know, it hasn't been enacted yet. Um, and Buckley says, you know, one of the moments in the debate that um, during the, the Cambridge Union debates, you know, people in the audience could stand up like in the House of Commons and, and the speaker could acknowledge them for a question or a comment. And one of the things that's cut out of the BBC recording is most of the student questions. So um, that's one reason it's worth listening to the, the audio because you get more student questions for Buckley. But the one that is captured in the recording on the BBC is a what ends up to have been a, a young um, American sociology instructor, a guy named Earl Hopper, and, and Buckley's kind of doing this, what would you have us do routine? Um, and Hopper says, you can start by allowing black people to vote in Mississippi. And Buckley says, the problem in Mississippi, sir, is not that black people aren't voting, it's that too many white people are voting. And what I would advocate is a disenfranchisement of you know 60%, I think is what he says, of the, the white people who are currently voting. Um, and so he says the answer is, is less democracy, not more. And so Buckley kind of, you know, and he ends up advocating that um, going forward. He essentially says that, you know, that we, we can use these race neutral policies um, as the next step. And, and what's, what's really, I mean, I think very clear about this is that the point of going to a race neutral approach is to hollow out the gains of the civil rights movement, right? So, I mean, Buckley is surprisingly honest about that, right? And I think that's one thing that, you know, looking at Buckley in this way that I do in the book, he's obviously just one individual and we, you know, we, we you know, you can't overgeneralize from one individual story, but by really looking at one individual in this kind of depth and detail really allows us to see um, how these things evolve over time and we can apply those to how they evolve politically generally over time. So that's, I think that's a really important part of, um, you know, of this story. And it, it certainly has relevance down to today, right? As we're looking at how the current Supreme Court is, is, is dealing with voting rights. And, and, and I think one thing that Baldwin, just to bring Baldwin back in, you know, uh, sure. I don't want to end on Buckley necessarily, but, but I mean, one, one thing about Baldwin is that, you know, Baldwin is somebody who there's so much in, in Baldwin's thought that I think is relevant to our own, to our, to our current moment. And I think one of the things that's most relevant is Baldwin is, is really one of his central, you know, um, you know, the central injunction, the central argument that he makes is that we have to accept our history, right? And we have to come to terms with our history. So, I mean, Baldwin, you know, that's one thing when people would ask him, what would, you know, what, what, what should we do? 
what should we do? You know, I get that question from interviewers all the time. And he would say, I want you to come to terms with your history. I think all of us need to come to terms with our history. And one thing about that colorblind constitutionalism approach is that it is a direct attempt for us to abdicate our responsibility to come to terms with our history. And that's, that's precisely, uh, you know, for Baldwin, that is, you know, that's the worst thing we could do, right? Because we have to come to terms with our history. And Baldwin's not somebody who's going to give us a direct, you know, response to all the policy questions we have before us. But he thinks the foundation of all those policy debates is going to be our, our, we have to have the willingness and the courage to come to terms with our history. And he says, it's going to be painful, but it's a responsibility that we have as human beings. And it's the only way that we're going to move uh, our society closer to justice. Yeah. What a perfect way to, to end this conversation. It's so relevant for today's world and for the work that I'm in and philanthropy. I came from the nonprofit side where you're working deep in community. I think for philanthropy, um, in many respects, it's wrestling um, with its history, with, with its way forward. How do we think differently about how we engage um, with a less charitable way, but in a more equitable way and one that leans towards justice? And so it, it's quite a time that we're living in with COVID-19 that is amplifying disparities yeah. in ways that are, are way too um, difficult to ignore. It's something that we're all proximate to in this moment, but the decisions we make now will matter a lot for, for our communities, for our nation, for our world. Um, I appreciate you taking time remotely mm -hmm. to have this conversation. Um, Nicholas Bukala, the author of The Fire Upon Us. I've, I've made it halfway through that book. By the time you get to Minnesota, I will finish it. Oh, great. I probably could have finished it 12 times, but I keep going back and like trying to sit with it. And I mean, oh. it's just, it's brilliant work. Um, I thank you for your, your gift and your attention um, to history and policy. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been a real pleasure. I, yeah, I wish I was there with you in, in Minneapolis, but uh, I look forward to, to meeting you uh, in person one day soon. And I, I really, I appreciate the work that you do. I think that you're, you're doing great work and, um, and I know Baldwin would be proud. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. My heart is warmed. <laughs> Thanks. Have a great day. Uh, you too. Take care of yourself. Thank you. To listen to more episodes and learn about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.